ultimately years later, what you remember are the challenges you ever came. You don't really remember yeah. the first sale or, or some win that you got along the way. In that moment, that feels amazing. Yeah. But years later, what you remember are, are the challenges, the times that were hard, that times that maybe things weren't going to work out where you were completely scared and that you overcame that. I, I think that's what you remember and what sticks with you. Welcome back to Alexa's Input. As simple as possible, as powerful as necessary, right? Welcome to Alexa's Input. The person is probably more interesting than the tool that they're using. Welcome to Alexa's Input! Welcome to the fifth episode. Welcome back to Alexa's Input. Then a six-year-old runs into the data center with a squirt gun and they <laughs> set that machine into a pile of sparks and flames. Yes, it's a good thing to do. Is it the thing we should be doing? Welcome to Alexa's Input. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Alexa's Input. On this episode, I'm talking with Guillermo, also known as Memo. Sanchez about founding a startup. He's been through this process more than once and he has some great insights to share about the things he's learned from his experiences. Memo got a bachelor's in computer science at the University of Texas at Austin. After that he worked uh, for almost six years at FactSet where he was a software engineer and then also a manager. After that he went on to be co-founder of Reonomy where he was there for a little over three years. Then he went to Blink Health, where he was an engineering manager. After that, he went to Del Shaw Capital, uh, where he was the VP of engineering for over a year. And then he was co-founder and CTO of a company called Pragmic for around nine months that was acquired by DVO1. Currently, he's at DVO1, and he started as the principal engineer there. Once it was acquired, then VP of engineering, and now he's currently in the chief technology officer or the CTO position at DVO1. Today we talk about how Memo got into tech, if he always knew that he wanted to start a company, how he started his first startup, how he came to be co-founder, and how he found the opportunity, some of his biggest lessons learned, the co-founder relationship, what's it like to go through an acquisition, um, he gives some advice also to people who maybe are thinking about starting a startup and just gives some great insights, had a great time talking to Memo. I think most of the people that I met that have been founders have all kind of been similar and that they try a lot of different ideas, they take a lot of risk, and not everything works out, even though maybe what you see on the LinkedIn resume is always the the companies that were actually successful. But I think it's fascinating to talk to these people and learn more about the process. And I think they're really like gritty, perseverant people. So um, there's a lot to learn from them. And before we dive into this episode, of course, I just want to say thank you for listening. I love doing the podcast. And with that being said, I record and edit these all on my own. So if you're listening and you can, I would very much appreciate it if you were able to donate um, even a small amount. You can donate like $1 a month or you could do like $10 a month if you really want. Just go to the link in the description, the anchor link, and on there you can donate. It's super easy and I would really appreciate it. And thank you so much to everyone who donates now. 
I see you and I appreciate you. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so that you can see when a new one comes out. Right now, I'm doing them monthly. Also, be sure to follow the Twitter account. It's at Alexa's Input to see when a new one comes out and any news. And sometimes I share like snippets of things as well. So thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to Alexa's Input, and today I'm here with Memo Sanchez, and we're talking about, you know, starting a startup or founding companies. So, Memo, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Memo. I'm the uh, CTO at BBO1. I'm, um, I guess I've been in tech for oof, a couple of decades now, uh, you know, officially, professionally, maybe 15 years, um, been sort of working in and out in the New York City area for, you know, the majority of that part. So, um, here I am. Awesome. So how did you get into tech? I guess I was always interested in computers. I think I remember being young and always attracted to them. So I can remember even like before I was into tech, that was a sort of an attraction. But I would say sort of the tipping point was when I got an AOL 2.5 disc in the mail. Um, I don't think I've ever logged off since, but (laughs) that was the point where I started seeing that there was software that I wanted to also interact with. And I started playing around there. Through that, I ended up downloading a virus that deleted my family's computer and I tried to <laughs> fix it. <laughs> so that's how I got into tech. And then through that, I just started learning more and more how to program, you know, messing around on the computer. There was like a few basic program called Gorillas that everyone kind of messed with to, to make the game faster. Through the AOL scene, there was this sort of, um, people wrote visual basic programs to kind of interact with that. And I remember being very young, not knowing what I was doing, but messing around with the code to try to get it to do what I wanted. And that's kind of how I really got into tech um, before I officially went through, um, you know, like computer science um, at the University of Texas and, you know, got a job. Yeah. <laughs> so did you always know, even when so you start off as just a programmer, but did you always kind of know that you wanted to start a company or was that even on your mind? No idea. I don't think that was ever really one of the, the goals that I, I started when I was working. It's always been about just being curious about computers, you know, wanting to build things and just work on, on interesting things and interesting problems. So I don't, I don't think that ever looked like a company in my mind at any initial point. Cool. So Maybe you weren't thinking, I want to start a company, but you were just open to the idea if it came across. Yeah, I think it was a way to sort of achieve something. You know, I remember yeah. even, even in college, I had a website um, that was like doing affiliate linking to try to make money, uh, which, you know, now it's like if you're on Instagram or any social media, people do affiliate links on everything. And I guess that was a company in a way, but it was really just a business I was doing on my own. And it wasn't really, it wasn't really a company is never the first thought. You just saw something that was needed and you knew a way to build it. Well, I yeah. wouldn't even say I knew how to build it. I just wanted it. <laughs> You figured out how to build it. Yeah. So how did you come about starting the first company that you co-founded? Like, how did that happen? Yeah, that's an interesting story. So that one, I had been in tech for maybe six years or, or working at a financial services company. And I was a little bit, I don't want to say frustrated. I was looking for something new. 
Um, I think I was ready to take something else on um, and had been at a big company. And at that point, um, the startup world was kind of getting hot again. And I had uh, my boss at the time leave. And it seemed like a perfect opportunity for me to leave. <laughs> uh, and I just jumped in and met with these guys who were starting a company um, already. They had been on the path of the early part of, of the adventure. So I met up with them. Um, they had nothing built. They were just looking for someone to, to write code. Uh, and that's how that started. Uh, I just met some, some people I didn't really know with an interesting problem. And how did you find them? them? Through a friend of a friend situation, you know, nice. like most LinkedIn spam happens. Although I think at that point, I'm not sure it was LinkedIn. But yeah, they, they more or less found me and I was just looking for something and found them. Cool. So I just kind of fell into place. And what was that company like? Where did they get the idea from to start it? Yeah, so that was a company called Reonomy. And that idea had come from well, one of my friends now, but at the time I hadn't met at all, Charlie. He had been working on this idea for years. So he had gone through iterations of that idea before that version of that company started. Um, so he had done all the legwork of understanding, well, what the hell is this? Um, and then he was looking for, okay, what does the tech look like? Yeah. And what did it do? So Reonomy is a um, commercial real estate data company that you know serves, it's the largest database of commercial real estate data, I think. I'm not there anymore, so don't, don't quote me on that, um, yeah. that, that people use. And what made you decide to go all in on that company and that idea? Because it seems like it would be pretty risky compared to you know being at a larger company, comparatively low risk. So what made you decide to take that risk? I think there was a realization that if I wasn't getting what I wanted out of a larger company, that taking on some level of risk to get what I wanted was required. Like you had to have some sort of leap of faith. And I was, you know, young enough and maybe dumb enough to do it at that point in time. But I also believed in, in you know, I think what I was hearing from, from, from Charlie and at that point, Rich and, and Harlan as well, who were also involved. So, you know, they had a good idea. There was excitement around it. And I think that seemed exciting to me. I think excited, excitement and passion is generally contagious. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, it definitely is contagious. So. Were you the fourth person to be added into the company or what number were you? Yeah, I was the fourth, I think. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And so did you, I think I saw you did have the title co-founder, right? So they, they gave you that title as well. Yeah. So that, that came about, I joined, you know, they, they, they were in the closet at that point. We had a closet about the size of a dining room table <laughs> and they, there was no line of code written at all. So, uh, you know, oh, wow. my, I kind of went in there and I was like, well, sounds like we're starting at zero. Like, I, I, I think I'd like to be the co-founder if we're starting there. Um, so that was, I guess, maybe some foresight I had at that point in time. Yeah. But that's, um, yeah, that's how that happened. Yeah, no, it sounds like uh, they really did need you. So it makes sense. But what are some lessons? I'm sure that there are a lot of things you're learning being a co-founder. What are some big lessons that you learned for Oof. the first time? I think the first time, the biggest lesson I, I learned are that people are the most important part of the business. So going back to the initial core four, um, to even growing it beyond that, and every step of the way, like people are, are what make a business. Um, there's just some unknowable amount of work and challenges ahead of you when you start something that you just need to be able to trust in folks. Yeah, I think that's, 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 a, that's a huge one, I would say. From the other side, you know, I think one of the interesting sides of starting a 
a company and being a tech person is that you learn all the non-tech stuff too. Yeah. Um, so that was super interesting. I, you know, I think the other lesson I learned there is like everything's negotiable. <laughs> that's, that's a very, very important lesson. Uh, you know, on the tech side, we're very rigid in our, in our thoughts sometimes. On the business yeah. side, it's all negotiable. That's a good point. Um, and can you tell me some like reasons why you think people are so important to a company? Like what made you realize that? Well, I think the thing that made me realize it, there was an investor that I think when we raised our, our second or third round at that point, um, you go through due diligence and they kind of check your code, they check your security, they, they check everything about the company to make sure that they're investing in something that's believable. And it's somewhat, when you're early on, you know, a little bit stressful because you're like, well, are we going to go through due diligence? You know, we got through it, they invested in us. And I remember asking like, you know, why? You know, after the check's already written, well, the deal's been made and their, their message is like, well, we didn't invest because of this, this and that. And they basically laid out all these, the fears that you had that they thought would, they would see. They did see them, but they said, we invested in the people. We invested in the team and we believe in their ability to execute on, on the goals that you have. So I think that really helped me realize it. it's something I'd already been in my mind, but I think mm -hmm. hearing it from someone else was, was important. And how did you take that to the people that you hired? Like, how did you um, use that in hiring and creating teams? Yeah, so I think another aspect that you kind of learn along the way is that storytelling is a big part of just anything with a company. You have to be able to do that for hiring. You have to do that for investing. You have to do that for sales. When hiring, you know, I used my story of, you know, I came to do something that I wanted to do here. I didn't know what that looked like. It was more of a, it was an avenue to do more than just work. Um, and I think taking that to folks and saying, you know, you can do what you want to do here while helping us do this as well was how I sort of brought it to folks and, and helped bring people into the company. Yeah, cool. And by the way, um, Danger told me, and I'm paraphrasing something like, you're one of the few execs he knows that actually does care about people. So it's funny to me that you say that because that's also what Danger said about you, so. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I learned it from him. So it's kind of him to say that. But um, I'm also, like you said about the people matter, I'm sure like who you're co-founding with matters. What did you realize that are important about the people that you're like working directly with, you know, building out the company? Like what, you know, what traits about a co-founder are important? Yeah, I think that relationship is, is incredibly important because there's just going to be disagreements. Like you have to know that in those moments, you can trust that person. You will absolutely be mad. You might even yell at somebody early on before you have a lot of posts. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And through that, there has to be trust that, you know, tomorrow it's going to be okay or later on that day it's going to be okay. And that was part of working towards the same goal. So finding someone that you can do that with is, is very, very difficult. You know, I was fortunate to have found that the first time, given that I walked into a situation pretty blindly, but that's why, you know, the people I met there are the people I've sort of carried with me. Yeah, that makes sense. I feel like it is definitely probably a very important relationship to have. So I know you kind of came in with not a lot of expectations, but what are some ways maybe that starting a startup definitely the first time was just ex just not what you expected at all. I think coming from a tech perspective, you feel like you were going to be able to solve everything uh, through software. Yeah. The reality is that's just not the case. Um, 
there's a lot of thought, there's a lot of time and effort to so much more beyond software mm -hmm. um, that needs to be there. So I didn't have expectations, but I guess maybe those were sort of un unset expectations on my end. Like I'm just here to do software. I'm just here to do tech. And even tech looks like so much at a company where you're just one person, two people. Um, yeah. You know, it's every aspect of tech and, and it's also beyond that. So what position were you at? Um, I think it was Faxit, right? When you, you left Faxit. What position were you there before you left and became the IC um, at the startup? I don't even remember exactly. I think I was managing a group of folks. So I think I was probably an engineering manager. Oh, wow. Um, so you probably weren't coding that much at that point, right? I was to some extent, uh, but I, I did have a team. And, it, and in fact, so at that point, I'd grown pretty big. So I was managing in, in Manila, Hyderabad, London, and New York. Um, oh, wow. So I was coding uh, as much as that allowed me. Yeah. So it must have been kind of a shift to go from you know managing people to just coding all the time. But then I, I guess that managing part probably came in handy when it came time to actually build your team, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I've always tried to stay technical. I feel like I, I like software. So at yeah. that point in time, um, Node was pretty early. And I was one of the people, I think at Saxet, I was trying to do Node on Windows, which I might've been one of the few people in the world trying to do that <laughs> in its beta. Um, but that's what Saxet ran. Um, so I had been doing that also outside of, of work too, just learning uh, Node more and more. So I was able to step into that again pretty easily, I would say. Uh, yeah. But that's, and so when you left the startup, what position were you in when you left? I don't know. It was one of those things where because I didn't care about titles, we never really given myself one, I would say. Like yeah. I, I, I never really cared. I was like, oh, well, I helped do this. I'm only here to help make it succeed. Yeah. Um, so I, I, when I was doing there, um, I was on a research team. Um, so we had an R&D team trying to look at new projects, new ideas, trying to create POCs uh, with a, a group of four folks um, just to see what the next thing might look like. Um, oh, cool. So still a fairly small team, which is good. Uh, it's nice to work with. But, yeah, the uh, team was quite big. The company was quite big, but that team yeah. was small. Yeah. So what did your, what did leaving look like? Like, how did you leave? And then where did you go next? Yeah. So that was one of the slightly bittersweet, I would say. I, I think when we started growing, we also started bringing other people into the company mm -hmm. and there was a decision to pivot towards uh, not commercial real estate at a point in time. And I, well, I was in agreement with it. Um, and I think there's a few people not in agreement with it. And so that ended up not working out so well. And that, that's kind of how I came to exit the company. Funny enough, afterwards, it went back to commercial real estate, but I, by that point I was, I was already gone. Oh my gosh. And so where did you go next? Like how, how did that transition happen? Yeah, I think that one, I, I tried to recreate the magic, I would say. And mm -hmm. that's part of the reason I realized like people matter as well. You know, I, I joined a few small teams that were people who were trying to get their company off the ground. Yeah. And it just didn't feel the same. Maybe I was still sort of uh, attached to the previous idea or yeah. I don't know, it wasn't working out. So I decided to go back into tech. You know, one of the things you do when you're, by going back into tech, I mean, go get a job. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, one of the things when you're starting your own company um, is that, you know, you wonder what else is out there. Um, at yeah. the same time, also in New York, when I started, it wasn't the tech 
city that it is now. Like people weren't doing engineering and startup in the same way. So I went from a yeah. larger company to you know helping start this company to now being like, well, this is a much more exciting landscape in New York than than it was before. Let me go work with very smart people who know how to do things that I don't know how to do and see what I can learn. Yeah, uh, and that's kind of what I went to do, and I ended up getting uh, a job at at Blink Health. Did Reonomy, did it go public or what happened with that company? It hasn't gone public. It's still around today. It, it's grown oh, cool. quite a quite a big, you know, I think, and it's still, it's still going alive. It's kicking um, and it's doing pretty well. Nice. I bet you're still hoping that it goes public probably though. <laughs> it's, it's always nice to see an exit. I'm just happy it's still yeah. around. Uh, I'm pretty sure this, well, I, I do wonder if there's code that I wrote still running. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, kind of hopefully not right by this point. I kind of hope that my code gets replaced at some point. I agree. But there's a, there's sometimes there's pride in creating this tiny little thing that survives. Yeah, you're right. Like it's reliable, dependable. And so no one needs to, it's not on fire right now. So no one needs to touch it. Yeah. I agree with that. So you left and went to a couple of larger companies, right? I think you went to Blink and then you went to, um, I don't know if I'm going to say it right, Del Shaw. Capital. So what was, what was your experience there? Like before you decided to co-found another company? Yeah. So I was just trying to learn things really, you know, at at Blink Health, like I said, I wanted to go work with a strong group of people that, that did things that were, I just had no idea, but also I had never done the B2C side of the world. Like Rihanna was a B2B business and Faxit was, Mm -hmm. uh, well, I wasn't even involved in the business side of it. Um, so I wanted to learn what that looks like from a tech point of view. Yeah. Um, so what I was doing there was doing web development. So I can understand if you have the sales funnel, you know, what, how can you tweak that funnel using software to increase it, you know, 5%, 10% here mm-hmm. or there, increase sales. So I think yeah. I was trying to learn that. And then at Dell Shaw, that's a private equity company. I was really just trying to learn the financial side of the businesses. How, how, does, how does all that, that work? You know, I had worked in commercial real estate software. That's a private equity company that was doing actual commercial real estate. You know, what are yeah. the actual problems there? Cool. I like that you took the, I like that you went to, you know, a really small company and then figured out what you need to learn and then went and did that and then went back and started another company. What was different the second time when you started, when you co-founded the second company? Yeah, well, you just, you know a lot more. Uh, you mm-hmm. know what to do, what not to do. I, I would say that there's a lot more confidence because of that. Not because you've had some successes, but I think because you've overcome some difficult challenges. Uh, so you can kind of go in with, with that confidence. And there's also knowledge of, well, how can you not shoot yourself in the foot from the get-go? What corners can you cut and what corners can you not cut from a, from a tech perspective? You know, some things are very hard to undo if you don't start doing them. You know, that might look like Terraform on, on the infrastructure side or, um, you know, how you store your passwords. You know, these kinds of decisions that you make early on in the company, what these abstractions look like can kind of survive for a long time. So you mentioned Terraform and, you know, like managing passwords, but what are some other things that you feel like you shouldn't, you know, cut corners on? And what are some things you think you can cut corners on? I would say... You have to understand what the core value of what you're doing is. You know, if it's data, then you need to really not cut corners on um, your data model and then the layers of what your data 
lives and, and how you move between them. You have to have a, that, that separation so that you can abstract out later more and more. For the things that aren't your core business, you really just want to buy. Like you don't want to spend a whole lot of time developing software that doesn't add to the business that, that you're really trying to build. And I think that can be kind of a tough call. People are excited about building new things at any moment. Um, mm -hmm. and you have to focus on the things that, that actually are core to what you're trying to build. It's like where to maybe put your focus was a big thing that you learned and applied the second time. Yeah, and I think these days, there's so much software that you can just buy or get on the cloud that wasn't available even five years ago. Yeah. Um, so if you, you know, if it comes at a cost, but it allows you to focus on the software that does add value, um, I think that's, that's a huge lesson early on so that you can, you know, have some, some velocity towards the right direction. Yeah. So the second startup that you were part of co-founding, Pragmic, how did that, I like, can you explain a little bit about what Pragmic is and how you got involved with it? Yeah. So I was working at a company with my co-founder and friend, Charlie, who was also the co-founder at Reonomy. And we ended up leaving and just started going through ideas of, okay, from what we know now, what is a problem that's interesting to solve? And there were a lot of ones that we were trying to tackle uh, across different sort of spaces, but we kept coming back to this idea of better understanding difficult to understand financial instruments. And that, that, that's maybe hard to explain, but what Pragmic did was take loan level data for mortgage-backed securities and find a way to attach it to the actual underlying collateral. So the property or home that that mortgage belongs to so that you can have more understanding of what that loan is for. So right now, the way people do that, you know, through to whatever financial instruments are out there or financial products uh, rather is they can investigate a bond and they get very high level information about that bond. Like, you know, 30% are in Texas or 50% are in California. And mm -hmm. this is sort of the, the value of those loans and some things like that. But they don't tell you that like, oh, well, you know, the homes in the Bronx perform differently than loans to homes in Manhattan or Brooklyn or Houston, Texas or Los Angeles. This idea yeah. of like data isn't available. So Pragmic does that combining uh, of mortgage-backed security loans to the underlying collateral. Oh, cool. And who, who uses this? Like who's the customer? Well, so the customer uh, is our investors or, or people who create bonds. Um, okay. So there, there's two sides of the table there on the, on the financial um, side, but both can benefit from, from understanding that, you know, in the world of bonds, the prepayment rate is the most important part. So if you can find out new data points that allow you to better understand the prepayment rate, people are interested in, in, in incorporating into their models. Nice. And I bet this second time around, investing everything was a lot smoother because you already had people who knew you and the type of work you did. So I bet a lot of those things probably went smoother. Did you go with different investors or did you use your network or how did that work? Different ones, I would say. Um, I don't know if it's always smoother. There's always people trying to give you money. It's just, a, it, it, it's what does that money cost? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and I think there's a lot of talk there. Uh, it, so what we ended up doing was we're trying to find people who 
who can also help us. The value, you know, almost every investor say, well, if you, you know, if we give you this money, we can open these doors for you. We have these relationships, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and sometimes that works out, sometimes it doesn't. But the, the value is when you can find investors that does. So if you go, if you're trying to do a product that speaks to, for example, let's say beauty and skincare or something, you want to find an investor that has actual access to, to that world and can introduce you and, and help mm-hmm. with your business. For a mortgage-backed securities product, you want to go talk to people who, who have that side of it. So we were looking for folks that, that might that actually invest in, in mortgage-backed securities as our, as our investors. Um, what actually ended up doing is we've, we got put in touch with another company that was also doing something around the similar space and the investors were, you know, more like you two should talk. Uh, okay. That's how we ended up getting acquired. Oh, wow. Oh yeah. I saw you were acquired by Dev01. Is that how you say it? DV01. Yes. DV01. Okay. DV01. Nice. And how, so it wasn't long after starting the company that you actually got acquired. Yeah, we did it. During 2020, so during the pandemic when we were locked down, just writing code, we started and we ended up selling that October. Wow, so pretty recently. That's exciting. Did you want, uh, what, like, what was the decision making like between, like, should we go with investors or should we get acquired? Yeah, I think they were both interesting things that we had on the table. The reason we went this way is we could leverage the team that already existed. It's, there's, there's a lot of work to get to the point where you have 80 or mm-hmm. 100 people. So if we can leverage folks that already have you know, a lot of that and are really doing the things that we want to be doing anyways, mm-hmm. um, you know, can, we, can we get a head start? And I think that was an exciting and different you know, path that we hadn't taken. I had not gone to that. Interesting. So would they have been a competitor to you if you would have kept going or were they just slightly different? At the time they were different. They would not have been a direct competitor in any way. But I think if you were, you know, maybe if you were thinking in the long future, so maybe years ahead, there's a possibility that that's something that could have happened. You know, they weren't doing anything with mortgage-backed securities at that time. Yeah. So what are some different learnings that you had and maybe in the beginning, in those first nine months that were different from the first time? I guess the big thing next to that to me is that technology really moves fast. <laughs> <laughs> so even in yeah. just a few years, everything is, is so different. So you really have to go back to the core of what you want to do and then apply the technology to that afterwards. And yeah. you can't start with the tech. Um, That's interesting because your assumptions aren't always valid. You have some abstract idea, and I think that stays true. But what exactly that looks like, I think, isn't the case. Like, even if you're choosing a cloud provider, or if you're choosing a, a database, if you're choosing anything, it all just moves so fast that you have to go evaluate your options. So when you say you can't start with the tech, every time you know, you're building something new, um, do you usually not have code written before you really go pitch the idea? Or how does that process work? No, you do. I, I think you always have to have something that's functioning. People like to see, yeah, uh, you know, the proof that, that something works. And well, you want to prove it to yourself as well before you you feel like you can share it to anybody. At least I do. Um, yeah. And you know, I worked with that even before we founded the actual company. We spent months going through iterations of what that looks like before we were like, okay, this is step one. 
Um, and that all has code to it. Uh, but I think you have to not fall in love with it and, and realize that this is a prototype. This is just something that is a tool for my own understanding. And then when you yeah. start building the company technology, and uh, that might be a little bit different. Did you do all that process? Did you do it while you had a job? Did you just do it outside of work? Or did you just like take off and commit full-time before having any investors? The, we we had already left our, our jobs. So, you know, just so there's no conflict of interest or anything like that, we were we started afterwards. No, we had the luxury, I guess, to do that. Um, and then COVID hit and maybe that's more or less of a luxury, <laughs> but we were stuck indoors for a while. <laughs> Yeah, I would, yeah, that's why I was curious about if you just had to go without income for a few months doing that. Yeah, I, I think uh, I refer to it as investing in myself. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just something you have to definitely be prepared for and, you know, be able to do. But as long as that you are prepared, then that's fine. I guess we're lucky also in our industry with tech that we know that if we really need a job, you can usually get one pretty quickly because um, there are a lot of open jobs in tech right now. So that's nice. Yes, I think, I mean, it's, it's absolutely a luxury. And I think that's something that I'm, I'm lucky to have had and I'm grateful for. I do think I could have found a job or found some sort of work as well. Um, I didn't have to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was, it's not any less stressful along the way, I would say, but um, it does help to, you know, at least have food on the table while you still get to do this thing. Yeah. So what is your role now in the, in the DV01 company? Uh, so currently at DV01, I'm the CTO. So I oversee you know, the technology strategy of the company. I, I oversee the people on the engineering organization. Yeah, that's more or less it. And what was the agreement go when they acquired you uh, to the role that you would play and how much impact you would have in the company? Yeah, I think that, that's a good question. So during that acquisition, you learn about a lot, especially you have lawyers. There's a way to say, well, I'm going to be able to focus and work on this thing. Looks a lot like three pages of a document. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that was really the agreement was that coming in, I would be able to focus on executing on um, building out the business to use the algorithm that Pragmic had built. I would say along the way, a lot of things changed. You, you know, we ended up having a high level executive leave. So I stepped into the, uh, the VP of engineering role and then ended up stepping into the CTO role. Um, and to that, I've, my entire world has changed, but that's sort of the agreement of coming in and how that would happen. And so and we built out a team and I'm working to do that. Nice. And uh, how are you liking the role that you have now? Are you enjoying it or? Yeah, no, I, I think I do. I, you know, if there's any hesitations, because there's a lot of challenges that, you know, to, to, to do all that, but I, it's engaging. And I think that that's probably all you can really ask for if you're working on something every single day. Um, mm -hmm. Every single day is different. It's engaging. It's interesting. It's uh, you're problem solving more than just software. You're problem solving organizational ideas. Uh, you're exposed to things beyond what you're usually doing, uh, whether it's sales or uh, anything like that. Uh, it's all interesting. I think that's, that's kind of what's exciting to me uh, yeah. about having this type of role is that at some point, maybe the tech isn't just enough to keep your interest. Yeah. And how many people are under you now in engineering? Oof, I'd have to check. Uh, we've been growing for the last, uh, <laughs> the last few months. Um, the company is approaching 100 folks, I think. Nice. 
more than half of that is engineering by far. Yeah, that's pretty good. And what number I see were you when you came in or how many, about how many people were there? I believe the company was around 70, maybe 80 when we came in. Um, yeah. Okay. I don't, I don't know what number I was. Yeah. So, I mean, not big, obviously, but for a startup growing, definitely. Yeah, enough where you know everybody's name, but also yeah. enough where there's a lot going on. Yeah. <laughs> so what are you looking to do in the future? I mean, I don't know if you have a plan or not, but where do you see this going? Well, I want to succeed on this first. So I want to get yeah. this to the, to the finish line. Um, that's, that's definitely step number one. And I think after that, it's about, I'd like to start a company that does good for the world. Something that has uh -huh. a, a global view, you know, beyond just financial markets or New York, just something, something bigger. Yeah. You've been there for around 11 months or so. Are the people that you started the company, the Pragmat with, are they still there also at DVO1? Yeah. So Pragmat was only ever two people. It was, it was me and my co-founder and we are uh, oh, nice. DVO1 working uh, to build out the the product for the agency mortgage-backed securities nice oh that's good and so you think that you might move on to something like when you move on uh do you have a preference as to if you try to co-found something else or if you go work for someone else i would say both are on the table i do think there's there's a lot of fun starting a company so mm -hmm. i think that may, maybe i lean towards that direction there's also this idea well all these new skills I get being in the position on that, this size company, what does the evolution of that look like? Uh, and that's not clear to me yet, but it would also be exciting. Yeah. I'm just curious, what's like the funnest time you had or the funnest part of starting a startup? It's always the first year where it's, it's yeah. always about building and figuring stuff out. After that, it, it things get more complicated, but <laughs> I, I think the, the first year, especially the first few months are just incredibly exciting. I think it's, it's, um, yeah. It's kind of the good and bad part of starting a company that is it's in, incredibly immersive. You know, it, it's all consuming and, and that's good and bad because it affects everything around you, your relationships, your family, you know, you're, you're just in it. Uh, and so that makes it incredibly rewarding, but also incredibly frustrating. But I think that that is what makes it the most exciting. Yeah. And how did you, did you keep a balance or were you just really not able to, because I fear that that first year is like a year long hackathon kind of. And I mean, that's like all day, every day. Did you, um, were you able to keep a good balance, like be healthy and keep up with, you know, family and relationships or is that really difficult? Well, this time, given the time period, it was that the family part was difficult. The, the good thing is you own your own time. So if you do need to go mm -hmm. for a run or go work out, that's definitely something you get, you just choose. It, it, it's, a, it's a choice you make. Mm -hmm. um, so that flexibility is very nice to have. Yeah. So I think it is what you make of it. And I think that's why it's immersive because you choose to keep doing it. Yeah, I guess you do have like more control of your time, but at the same time, there's a lot more pressure for you to use your time, you know, building something out. So I could see where it could go both ways. I like you work all the time, but also where you can make time for the things that you need to do whenever you need to do them. Yeah, I think you, you realize that you need these other things in life too. Friends, yeah. family, <laughs> some sort of um, entertainment it is, I don't know, I think I learned long ago in tech that software isn't just writing the code. It, it's mm -hmm. a lot of thinking. So, you know, you're doing that 
while you're doing other things if you're really interested in the problem. So you don't yeah. have to be feeling guilty that you have to be in front of the computer at all times if you're thinking through a problem. You can do that while you're walking. You can do that in the shower. You can do that at dinner as well. And I think that's an important realization that, that helps remove the stress of feeling like you have to be in front of the computer. Yeah, it's actually funny that you say that because sometimes if I'm stuck on something, if I take a walk or take a shower, like if I just take my mind off it for a second, I'll think of the answer. Um, so it's important to step away. I think probably being on all the time is not that productive. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's the reason why different perspectives in, in tech matter. It matters on a personal level, but also at, on a team level. If you have a mm -hmm. different diverse group of folks with different ideas, those different uh, perspectives bring new thoughts that allow you to solve the problem. So mm -hmm. I think on a personal level, that looks like getting yourself out of the same situation. Yeah, exactly. Just like some, you know, overarching questions, like what is some advice that you would give someone starting a startup right now for the first time? Invest in a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> if you really believe in your idea, it's worth always, you know, that's a very practical one, but it's, it's just worth preparing for the worst case scenarios. If you really believe that the best possible scenario is uh, available to you as well. A personal just, lawyer or like a lawyer for that? I just startup? mean it for the actual startup, just going through the paperwork of funding it, uh, yeah. of starting it. It's easier if you have someone to help guide you. Um, yeah. You know, they do this hundreds of times a day. You're doing it one time. There's a lot of benefit in having that, that partnership and, and knowledge. Yeah. Um, I'll also say, you know, believe in yourself. I think that's the only way forward. Uh, you have to at some point make the jump and try it out. You don't really know where it's going to go. And I think that's not a bad thing. You just have to start doing it and see where mm -hmm. it takes you. Uh, maybe that takes you to a point where you stop. I, I've definitely done that. There's definitely been ideas that didn't make it further than just a prototype or an idea. But that's how you found out. That's how you find out if they're worth continuing. You just have to get started. Yeah. And how many times do you think you've done that? Definitely dozens and maybe two big ones where oh, wow. you go several months before like, you know what, this is, this isn't going to work out or even this might work out, but I don't necessarily see how to make it happen right now. You might need certain people. You might need certain things that, that you don't have that at the moment. Oh, that's good to know uh, that you had to try a lot of things that also didn't work out. You just have to take the risk and kind of like practice taking those risks before something works out. Yeah, I think that that's, it's going to happen. So I think you just kind of have to, to go down the path. And that's why I say just start. Um, it's the best way to really know if your idea is, is worth continuing going on. Mm -hmm. you, find, you find that out for yourself. And there's, no, there's nothing wrong with, with pivoting well, when you're one person. Yeah. And do you actively like, search for ideas or do you find since you maybe started the first startup that it's kind of just something that keeps being on your mind since you're kind of like in that mode? I think it's a little bit of both. I think everything I've done is very data centric. So I pay attention to things that produce data, whether mm -hmm. that's um, newsletters where people just publish interesting data sets or whether you're just reading the news and you say, oh, well, this, this data is definitely an output of this. Yeah. Um, or data is an input of this. And I keep notes of things like that, but also just talk to friends, people, you know, anyone 
who wants to kind of share their idea. People yeah. have pretty good ideas and, you know, they often just need help. Yeah. So like just being aware and writing it down. Yeah. Yeah. So are there any other interesting stories that you have about the tech startup process that you'd like to share? Mm, I'm not, I don't know which ones I would love to share. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think for this reason is that ultimately years later, what you remember are the challenges you ever came. You don't really remember yeah. like the first sale or, or some win that you got along the way. In that moment, that feels amazing. Yeah. But years later, what you remember are, are the challenges, the times that were hard, that times that maybe things weren't going to work out where you were completely scared and that you overcame that. I, I think that's what you remember and what sticks with you. So, you know, like, and they're sometimes very dumb. Uh, like yeah. the first time you you yell at your co-founder because you want a better <laughs> chair or something. You know, like these very dumb things that, that, yeah. that, that are memorable. Um, the first time you break production when you're trying to make oh, yeah. uh, a, a sale, things like that, that at the moment seem catastrophic are, are really what sticks with me. So you got through it. I guess there's probably no substitution for going through those types of challenges. No, I mean, I think in any role too, right? In your job that happens to you, I imagine that that's the, the part that people remember as well um yeah it's just more intense maybe when you have so much uh, invested in it personally well that's great that's all the questions i have thank you for joining me today is there anything that you would like to like any parting words anything you'd like to leave us with no i thought was that uh, this was a great conversation i'm glad we got thanks. to have it so thanks for having me on thanks you too Thanks so much for listening to this episode with Memo Sanchez about founding a startup. And if you like this episode, make sure to subscribe so that you know when new episodes come out and follow the Twitter account at Alexa's Input. Uh, additionally, if you can, I would appreciate if you follow the link in the description to the Anchor site and support this podcast. Um, but yeah, I am looking forward to the next episode. So stay tuned for that. And I hope you have a great rest of your day.